Good morning. When Michael asked me to preach today, I asked him if we could break away from the Psalms for a week because Matt has asked me to preach next month on the topic of glorification and I had already decided that I was going to be preaching from Psalm 84 on that occasion and so uh, Michael was kind enough to, to let us move away for one week. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 1. I will read verses 1 through 7, then we'll pray and dive right in. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, the psalmist says that the unfolding of your word gives light. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would so unfold your word to us this morning that we might behold the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold his glory, may we be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This we ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. The gospel, which we have been singing about and talking about in so many different ways this morning, is good news. That's the meaning of gospel. Good news, glad tidings, a happy announcement. Uh, some of the kids and I were traveling back from Chattanooga last weekend and we're coming down I-75. And uh, as there are throughout I-75 and I-95 and probably every highway in these great United States, there are billboards which uh, a well-intentioned Christian, I'm sure, paid for, and they're designed to share the gospel. And the billboard that has become the favorite of the Swain family is a billboard that has a picture, I believe there's a cross in the middle, and it says something like, you choose. And on one side, it's got a girl who's getting kind of a piggyback ride from her boyfriend, it looks like. And on the other side, and, and there's no other way to describe what's on the other side, is there are, uh, there's a mob of zombies. <laughs> and this has actually provoked a lot of conversations in the Swain household about exactly what this sign is communicating. But our best guess is that it's saying that the good, no- good news calls you to make a choice and essentially the choice is you can either be happy and your boyfriend will give you piggyback rides, 
Or, and this is what there's a little bit of a dispute, either you'll become a zombie or you'll get eaten by zombies. <laughs> Again, I, there's a charitable way, I think, of making sense of it, and, and I've even used the zombie illustration before to describe the, the misery of sin. But it, it's perhaps not the clearest statement of what the gospel is. But if I were to ask you this morning, what is the gospel? If I were to ask you this morning, what is the best part of the gospel? What is the highest, supreme, and crowning good of the gospel? What would you say? Forgiveness of sins? Clear conscience? Eternal life? These are all part of the gospel. These are benefits of the gospel. Would you say, it's the cross? It's the atonement? That's... Of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when it comes to the gospel. Perhaps the resurrection. All of these, in some way, are part of the gospel, part of the the rich gospel bounty that is ours through faith in Christ. But what I want to suggest to you this morning from Romans chapter 1, that the crowning good of the gospel... The gospel that Paul, in writing to the Romans, and and in this actually extraordinary long personal introduction, the gospel that that Paul describes in in an attempt to to enjoin the, the Christians in Rome to support his preaching of the gospel and his desire to take the gospel to Spain. The crowning good of the gospel is what you see in verse 4. I'm sorry. What verse is that? Verse 3. I need classes. The crowning good of the gospel is concerning God's Son. Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. This is the crowning good of the gospel. This is the center of the gospel proclamation. And all the good things that come to us through the gospel are ultimately ordered to, as Paul says, His Name. As he says in Colossians chapter 1, that in all things he might be preeminent. What's what I want to talk to you about this morning? The crowning good of the gospel. And if you're the kind that takes notes, I have two points. First point, the crowning good of the gospel. Second point, how do we acquire this crowning good of the gospel? And each question has a twofold answer. The crowning good of the gospel is God's Son, our Lord. God's Son, our Lord. How do we acquire the good of the gospel? Two answers. Through the ministry of the word, received by faith. So let's look at this for a few minutes this morning. First, the crowning good of the gospel. Paul says that he set apart to the gospel of God. And this interesting language he uses there, he's set apart. This is a language that can be used for a priestly consecration. And he can later in the letter describe himself as a priest who's bringing the Gentiles as an offering to Jesus. And we'll see where he gets that imagery in a moment. But he says that his priestly ministry, if you will, is that he's dedicated to the gospel. He's set apart to the gospel. 
He's devoted to the gospel. Well, gospel in the ancient world has a number of different meanings, a number of different resonances that it calls forth. One is having to do with really the the proclamation of a king. And so in the Greco-Roman world, sometimes when a an heir to the throne was born, there would be gospel, an announcement. A child is born. Or when that child actually ascended to his throne, this would be the occasion for gospel, for good news, for the announcement of glad tidings. And it's interesting that the two events that Paul refers to when he speaks of the gospel of the Son, of his birth from the seed of David, and his being appointed as the Son of God with power, that is, his enthronement at the Father's right hand. And so that resonance is perhaps part of what Paul is describing and describing himself as being set apart to the gospel, to proclaiming that Jesus, God's Son, was born of the seed of David. He has now been enthroned at the Father's right hand. But but the deeper meaning of gospel doesn't come from the broader Greco-Roman context. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from passages like the one we read earlier in Isaiah 40, which proclaims the good news. It says, Behold your God. He's coming to rule with his mighty arm. He's coming to redeem his people. He's coming to lead them out of exile, to to once again establish his dwelling in their midst and eventually to restore David's throne. You see, divine kingship and Davidic kingship are, are central to the gospel because remember, at the, at the conclusion of, of God's great work of calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of redeeming Israel from Egypt, of leading them through the wilderness, ultimately causing them to settle in the promised land. You remember the climactic pinnacle moment of this is what? It's the building of the temple by Solomon. And what does this symbolize? That God, the divine king, has come to dwell in the midst of his people. And that Solomon, the Davidic king, right, is his earthly representative. Well, the, the language of gospel in the Old Testament arises after both the temple has been destroyed and the Davidic king has been exiled. Because of Israel's disobedience. Because of Israel's idolatry. And Isaiah and other prophets come along saying, in spite of all these terrible things that have come upon us because of our sins, there's good news. There's gospel that's coming. And the gospel that's coming is God is going to once again return to his resting place. To use the language of Psalm 132. He's going to restore his kingship in our midst. And when he does so... He's going to restore the kingdom of David as well. Well, the remarkable and surprising and wonderful thing that that the New Testament declares is that the restoration of divine kingship in the midst of his people and the restoration of Davidic kingship in the midst of his people come in one person. Jesus Christ, who's God in person. He's the gospel in person. Well, Paul, in describing this great fulfillment of the prophetic hope, the good news that God has made his son king, that he has raised a descendant of David from the dead, that he has enthroned him 
at his right hand. This is the crowning good of the gospel. And it's interesting, Paul alludes to two Old Testament texts to, to kind of apply this point and to clarify the significance of this point to us. In Romans 1.4, where he says God has appointed him, and that's probably the better translation, he's appointed him to be son of God with power. This, I think, is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. Remember what Psalm 2 says? We read it earlier. Psalm 2, verse 6. I have installed my king in Zion. That's the good news. This is what was promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I have installed my king in Zion. But what's fascinating about Psalm 2, and I think this is why Paul alludes to it here, is that in Psalm 2, you not only have the Lord saying, I have installed my king, you also have the one who is installed who tells us something about himself. You remember what the next verse says? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's fascinating is I have installed my king. This is something that's happened in the present. Psalm 2. But the, the statement that, that the, the king then says, that he's heard the father speak to him, it's in past tense. Here's what he said to me before he installed me as king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, and the author of Hebrews and really most of the church throughout church history has read that statement as an eternal utterance spoken by the father to the son before the foundation of the world. What kind of son are we talking about here? We're talking about an eternally begotten son. And the gospel declares that God has installed him in Zion. Psalm 2 goes on to say, Ask of me and I'll give the nations to you as your heritage. And the ends of the earth as your possession. And this leads us to the other passage that Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 1. Just in preaching the gospel. The gospel is not only about the, the installation of God's divine son as king at his right hand. But it also includes the promise made by the father to the son that he will inherit the nations. And the passage that Paul has in mind when he, he makes this point. He talks about the purpose of his gospel being a, to bring about the obedience of the faith from all nations for the sake of his name. The passage he's referring there is Genesis chapter 49. Turn over to Genesis 49. Remember at the end of Jacob's life, he's giving blessings to his various sons. And this is the pattern you see in the book of Genesis. Patriarchs passing on the covenant blessing, pronouncing covenant blessing to their children. And when Jacob gets to Judah, after describing him as the the royal victor for God's people, as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is the language we get from Genesis 49. He then says this in in verse 10. The scepter, that is the, the sign of divine kingship, the sign of having the right to rule, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, he has 
vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Saying something about this king's wealth. Wealthy people own vineyards in the ancient world and today. And this is the point of the wine. But, but what he says is, to him, to this king, not only will belong Judah's praise, and this is how he starts, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. But he says, to him will belong the obedience of the peoples. Well, this is what Paul says the gospel is about. It's announcing that God, what God promised in Psalm 2, we overhear an eternal utterance of the eternal father to his eternal son. That has now been fulfilled. He has installed his king in Zion. And through the preaching of the gospel, he's bringing about the obedience of the nations for the sake of Jesus' name. And that this is indeed the, the supreme and crowning good of the gospel becomes clear as you read the rest of the book of Romans. Remember in Romans chapter 8 verse 32 when, when, when Paul is trying to assure us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What does he say? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his what? His own son. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you hear the argument there? Do do, do you hear the the case that Paul is making? If God the Father has given to us already what is the greatest benefit of the gospel, his son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Or later, actually earlier, verse 29, where Paul is assuring us that God works all things together for the good, even when we don't understand how that works. As Stephen sung, A moment ago. What is he identified as the good towards which God is working all things? What does he say there? He says something about predestination. Is that it? He says something about calling. Is that it? He says something about justification. That's a good thing. I know that's really important. He says something about glorification. That's probably important too. You know know what? The the supreme good that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 8. He says he's conforming us to the image of the Son in order that what? He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is the crowning good of the gospel? God's Son. His enthronement at the Father's right hand. Now, that means that the crowning good of the gospel is about him, not me. And that might not sound like good news. But actually, part of the heart of the gospel is to decenter us, <laughs> to decenter the self. That's part of where sin entered in the world, right? We wanted to put ourselves on God's throne. And that has only brought us endless misery, death, and hell. And so, to turn that around, the first thing the gospel does is it says God has made him Lord in Christ. But here's the thing. While the Son of God is the crowning good of the gospel, the Son of God is not the crowning beneficiary of the gospel. In fact, do you know that Jesus Christ does not gain one single benefit from the gospel? Remember when Mark chapter 10, where he's describing 
really his future glory. He's describing the future glory that the disciples will inherit from following him. And they start getting in a little debate about who's going to sit where and all of that stuff. It's a fight for status. He says an interesting thing. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's not just a statement about, yeah, he puts others first. We know that, blah, 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 blah. No, this is actually a profound statement about the nature of the son. The son who came to us in the gospel did not come to us because he needed something from us. When God comes to David, when David said, I want to build you a house. You know what God says? I don't need a house. I, I don't need anything from you. I'm going to give you a house. When Paul takes the gospel to the pagans in, in, in Athens, what's the first thing he has to teach them? Because their, their religion has things all wrong. They think that God depends on us, we depend on him. It's kind of a mutual thing. What's the first thing he has to teach them? God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. This is what Jesus says in Mark 10. He didn't come to be served. No, he is the crowning good. He's the supreme goal of the gospel. But he is not its supreme beneficiary. Who is? We are. And, and, and this is the, the, the second part of our answer to the question. The crowning good of the gospel is God's son, our Lord. I, uh, I don't know why all my illustrations today are coming from driving. I, th- I think it's a symptom of I'm on the road too much. But I was coming back the other day from someplace, and uh, Caleb Hughes, don't judge me, but I was listening to uh, 90s country playlist. <laughs> and I realized as I'm listening to this playlist that basically every country song in the 90s can be put in two different categories. It's either some guy trying to tell some gal that he's not like he used to be, so therefore she should love him. Or it's some guy telling some girl, unfortunately I am like all these other guys, and so sorry, it's not going to work out. And, for, and, and again, every, we all are familiar with this, but I also kind of piece together what the, what the kind of underlying reality is. Apparently it has something to do with kind of what part of the rodeo circuit calendar you're on, whether, which guy you are. If the rodeo season's not going on right now, then you're kind of promising you're not one of these guys. But if it's on, right, then you're... Anyways. A friend of mine named Tim says that it's not just country songs, pop songs, rock songs. Uh, It's fascinating, isn't it? How much these songs emphasize relationship. How much they emphasize the hope and the possibility of finding true love, finding happiness in someone else and in our relationship to someone else. And the sad thing about, of course, all these songs that, to refer to the lyrics of another country song, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. But what the gospel is about is about saying that this one who is the son of God, who's the crowning good of the gospel, who was born of the seed of David, who died on the cross for our sins, who's raised from the dead, who's been enthroned at the Father's right hand, who has poured out the Holy Spirit, it's in a relationship with him as our Lord, as our head and as husband, that we receive every good thing. The same Lord is rich, Paul says in Romans 10, to all who call 
upon him. You know, when, when you're getting married and going through marriage counseling, sometimes you hear people say marriage is a 50-50 endeavor, or they'll start off that way, like you got to do your part, your spouse has got to do their part, and then someone clever will come along and say, well, actually it's 100-100, right? you got to do 100%. Spouse has got to do 100%. Here's the thing about our marriage to Christ. This is actually a 100-0 enterprise. And this is what Paul says. The one who is presented to us in the gospel is the one who has done everything. Right? Back in Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord describes his history of relating to Israel as the history of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And he said, though, though I had crowned you with glory, though I had found you lying naked in the wilderness and made you a queen of the earth, you were an adulterer. And not only that, you were a prostitute, but, but you were a prostitute different than all other prostitutes because you performed your prostitution for free. But he says, there's a coming day where I'm going to remarry you. You have not kept your promises, but I'm going to keep mine. This is what the promise of the gospel is. Jesus offers himself to us as our Lord and our husband. My beloved is mine and I am his. This is what Song of Songs says. And this is really the, 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 the great truth of the gospel. Jesus, God's son, is the crowning good of the gospel. And him being mine and me being his is my crowning good. Samuel Rutherford, the 17th century Presbyterian minister and theologian, says, Christ, Christ, Nothing but Christ can cool our love's burning languor. So the crowning good of the gospel. God's son, our Lord. How then briefly do we acquire this crowning good? Now, we're tempted to say by faith. I got your attention. And that's part of the answer. But it's only half of the answer, and it's, it's, the, it's the tail of the answer. It's not the head of the answer. It's a half-Protestant answer I want to suggest to you. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. My folks, for my entire childhood to early adulthood, had a lake house in Keystone Heights, and so what that meant is I spent a lot of time water skiing growing up. And you know, to water ski, you need two things. You actually don't even have to have skis. It's barefooting, right? You need two things. You need a ski rope, and you need a boat. Now, you know which is the most important part of, 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 of this equation when it comes to water skiing? It's the boat, Right? The thing that has the power to pull you up out of the water, to keep you going around the lake, it's the boat. Why do you have the rope? To be connected to the boat. Now, here's why I say, if we say faith is how we acquire Christ, so I say it's, it, it's a half answer. Faith is the rope, right? But a rope by itself. A rope detached from a boat, I can tell you, right? I mean, my little brother and I probably tried to pull each other 
because the boat wasn't working. Right? A boat without a rope won't get you anywhere. And this is true when it comes to acquiring Christ. Christ is offered to us through the ministry of the word. He's received by faith in the gospel. See, here's why this is important. Sometimes we want to turn faith into something it was never meant to be. Probably was tortured as a teenager based upon misunderstanding this truth about the gospel. Right? When, when we think faith is the thing, we, we go internal. We start wondering, do I have a strong enough faith? Do I have the right kind of faith? Do I remember when I first had faith? There's a million different questions we ask ourselves. But, but that's like two kids sitting in the water looking at the, the rope. There may be a time for that. That's actually not how you get yourself out of the water. It's the boat. And so the first answer to the question is, how do we acquire this crowning good? It's through the ministry of the word. And this is why Paul is writing the book of Romans. Because I've been set apart to the gospel of God. And I want to come to you, and I want to minister this gospel word in your midst, and then I want you to send me to, to minister it to others. It's through God-sent messengers who announce the word of the gospel. The strength of faith does not lie in the believer. The strength of faith lies in the word. And that's why the ministry of the word is so important. A lot of us don't know how to use our pastors the right way. We are currently in what is, I think, our third house. And I had done a great job in all other house purchases of avoiding what I had determined to avoid my entire life until this most recent one. When we bought this house, we bought a pool. And I didn't want to buy a pool because, first of all, I didn't want to pay for it. And second of all, I didn't want to take care of it myself. But finding myself in the situation with a house and a pool, I did what everyone does. I called my pastor. And so I called Matt one day and I said, hey, you guys have a pool. What do I do about this? And Matt says, oh, actually, you could probably take care of it yourself. Here's where you buy the stuff. And even, even a guy with such a limited skill set like you could probably, <laughs> you could probably take care of your pool. And he's been right. Now, I kid because that's not what you're supposed to use your pastor for. Right? Pastor's not there for pool advice. What's a pastor there for? What Paul says is true of the apostles at the foundational level of the church, but it's true of all God-ordained ministers. They are given to us to speak in the authority of Jesus' name all of the good promises that are offered to us in him. And so where should our faith be? In the word that is proclaimed to us. We hear that word in preaching. We hear that word in baptism. And this morning, little Jack, in having that water put on his head, 
He had the name of the triune God put on his head. And he had God's promise, I will be your father and you will be my son. He had the Lord Jesus Christ's promise put on his head, I will be your redeemer and ruler and you can be a member of my body. He had the Holy Spirit's promise that I will be your comforter and I will dwell you and you will be the temple of the living God. That's how you use your pastor. You receive those authoritative promises that God has sent to us through them. And so from this point on, little little Jack and his parents have every right to claim those promises as their own. Because guess what? They've been declared with the authority of someone sent by God to speak his promises in his name. It's true of the Lord's Supper. When the bread and the wine are given to us, you know what's being given to us? Jesus promises in his name, in his authority. And we receive them from our minister's hands as promises given in his name, in his authority. And when we come to public worship and we know we've blown it this week and we've confessed our sins and and we can't seem to assure ourselves properly that they've been forgiven, when Michael Hart or Matthew Ryman or whoever it is gets up and we have confessed our sins and he says, as one sent in Jesus' name, to speak in Jesus' name. I say to all who confess your sins, your sins are forgiven. Then you know what our faith is supposed to do? Say, thank you, Jesus. And so, how do we acquire this? Yes, through the word. And how does God give this word to us? Through God-sent ambassadors. In the preaching of the word. In the sacraments, in baptism, the Lord's Supper. In the assurance of pardon that's pronounced week after week. And so we receive this crowning good, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the word. Then we take it by faith. See, the word is how God offers the son to us. Faith is how we receive him. Faith involves acknowledging what the gospel claims. That God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Faith involves receiving Jesus as Lord. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the Son of God. Faith involves renouncing all dependence upon ourselves and looking wholly to him for everything we will need in this life and in the next. And faith involves renouncing our own autonomy, our desire to define the world we want to define it. I heard the other day a quote, Abraham Lincoln asked a crowd one time, if you, if you count the dog's tail as a leg, how many legs does a dog have? And the crowd said five. And he said, no, he still has four legs. You calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Right? That's how we want to rule our lives, though. We, we want to call things how, how we see them. We want to define for ourselves. But, but faith relinquishes this self-rule and it, and it submits to Christ as Lord, and this faith that receives Christ, that looks to Christ, that receives everything in him, it begets all other Christian virtues, hope, love. And when this faith is weak, and when this faith feels too small, 
it knows where to go to find a strengthened faith. Why? Because among the many blessings that Christ gives us in the gospel is the blessing of faith itself. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, God's Son, our Lord, He's the crowning good of the gospel. He offers Himself to us through His Word, delivered by God sent messengers, and invites us to receive Him by faith, to walk in fellowship with Him by faith, to look for every good from Him by faith. He, He, Not it. He is the treasure hidden in the field. He is the pearl of great price. He gives grace and glory. He does not withhold any good thing from those who embrace him because he does not withhold himself. I mentioned Samuel Rutherford earlier. He was... A pastor who was in prison for his Protestant faith. And during the time of his imprisonment in Aberdeen, Scotland, he wrote a number of letters which have become some of the most famous uh, sources of kind of spiritual encouragement in really all Christendom. And some of these letters were later taken and turned into poetry uh, and Cousins in the 19th century wrote a hymn that is drawn from the language and imagery of Samuel Rutherford's words. And there's one hymn that uh, my wife and kids have already been ordered, and they get mad at me every time I remind them, but it, it's a hymn that's going to be sung at my funeral. And it's a hymn that's all about the crowning good of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's practice in in medieval Christendom when someone was dying, the priest would hold the cross before someone's eyes and say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let me read you the last two verses as our conclusion. Let me hold before your eyes the cross of Jesus. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze on glory, but on my king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Listen to the imagery from Genesis 49. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. Not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you love your son. And that from the foundation of the world, you promised to enthrone him and make him Lord of all nations. That through the preaching of the word, you have caused this good news to be announced. 
and that among those who have been invited to receive him and to receive everything in him, you have included us. Grant today that by faith we may acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all and as our Lord. Grant that we may receive him. Grant that we may look to him for every good thing. Grant that we might resign our own lordship over our lives to his kind and gracious and wise lordship. And we ask these things in his name and for the sake of his name among all nations. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.